0: In this episode, we talk with distinguished plantsman Vincent Simeoni about great evergreens for your landscape. They offer beauty, function, and privacy. You won't want to miss his tips on the best time for planting them and some wonderful choices for the mid-Atlantic region. Also in this episode, our plant profile is on winterberry holly, which is not an evergreen, and in my What's New segment, I talk about the season of Imbolc and what that means in our gardens. This episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Vincent Simeoni. He is a horticulturalist, lecturer, garden writer, instructor, and author. Welcome, Vincent.
1: That's great to be here.
0: So do you prefer Vincent or Vinny?
1: Vinny would be fine.
0: Okay, I'll switch to Vinny then. I feel a little more casual that way, right? Yep. Great, so our center of our discussion is gonna be on great landscape evergreens. But before we dive into all that, Vinny, let's talk about little Vinny when he started. So we're going to talk about maybe, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins? Did you start gardening at a young age? What got you into this love of plants?
1: Well, I haven't been called little Vinny in a long, long time. So that that's <laughs> brings back old memories. But um, actually, uh, my parents, my grandparents, my uncle was, were very much into mostly vegetable gardening. Um, and I, I wasn't necessarily into vegetable gardening, but I certainly was into uh, flowers and trees and shrubs. But I, kind of started that around 12 years old and started playing around with growing morning glories and you know different things like that and then just kind of picked it up and, and kept with it uh, once I reached high school uh, there was an opportunity to go to a, basically a um like a vocational school for horticulture they had a horticulture program in 10th and 11th grade and I did that and then decided I wanted to you know pursue it and started my first my first degree in it, which is an associate's degree was in a ornamental horticulture as well so it kind of just went from there,
0: and what was your first job out of college with that degree?
1: Um, actually, I did a few internships. I did uh, some summer jobs in horticulture, working in, in a couple of different gardens. But I was lucky enough, actually, to get a, an internship at an arboretum, and I it start it started off as a six month thing, and with six month thing turned into a year, and I've been there thirty years.
0: Wow! And can you describe that arboretum for yep. us? Yes.
1: So it's a public garden on the North Shore of Long Island in oyster bay new york oyster bay is the uh, birthplace of teddy roosevelt and it is a state park and public garden called planning fields and uh, i started there as an intern uh, many years ago and have sort of evolved there and taken on different roles and i'm now the manager of the facility so but uh, you know, we've been involved in internship programs, cultivating internship programs, cultivating a lot of different uh, garden restoration, doing a lot of right plan for the right place and trying to, you know, be as sustainable as we can. So it, I've sort of evolved with the with the place. So. Hmm.
0: And Oyster Bay, I'm not familiar with the planting zone and area for that. Are you zone seven since you're so close to the water?
1: Yeah, so we're very, very, we're spoiled in a couple of ways. First of all, we are moderated by the water. Um, So we are officially now zone 7B. And so uh, we're we're definitely able to grow a lot of uh, mid-Atlantic and southern plants. And we're also able to grow a lot of of northeastern plants. Uh, In addition to that, planting fields got its name because it was farmed by by the Native Americans and it was actually used for agricultural use because it was such outstanding soil. And so we have very, very good garden soil that uh, eventually the property was turned into an estate and was designed by the Yomstead brothers. And uh, we have not inches, but probably feet in some cases of loamy topsoil.
0: I am so envious of you, Vinny. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Yeah, that was going to be my next was what is the native soil there? But that sounds like heaven.
1: Yeah, very well drained or Organic. It's it's uh, very very. We're very fortunate. Hmm.
0: And at your own home garden, what does that look like, and what do you grow at home?
1: Well, I mainly my main interest is woody plants, trees and shrubs. Uh, I do dabble in. uh, I'll do some years. I'll do large pumpkins. Some years I'll do. uh, I've been the last couple of years. I've been doing a lot of vegetables. I love heirloom tomatoes and and hot peppers. So I've been growing a collection of hot peppers the last couple of years. So uh, most Mostly things i can eat but some things that are ornamental as well
0: hmm. and switching subjects to our topic of the hour great landscape evergreens are there evergreens you can
1: eat um you know not that i know of the, the deer certainly try to yeah. uh and can be successful in that mm-hmm. uh but none that i would consider you know i i'm in that regard it's more ornamental than anything else but No, I don't, I don't think of any, I can't think of any evergreens that that would be edible for humans.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a semi-facetious question. <laughs> but I do think the one thing I was coming to mind was junipers and gin, of course. And right. Mm-hmm, and some of those berries. They're edible
1: in a, in, a, in a sort of a different way. But yes, that's certainly possible. Mm-hmm.
0: And I have seen some of the more adventurous new chefs that were using pine needles in cooking, but not really to my taste.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't call that a cuisine. But that's just my opinion.
0: Mm -hmm. So what are some of your favorite evergreens to grow in the mid-Atlantic?
1: Well, I was fortunate enough. um, So I got a two-year degree in horticulture actually on Long Island at a place called Farmingdale State College. And then I got a a four-year degree at the University of Georgia. And I was exposed to a much wider palette of plants. They have their own set of evergreens and their own set of issues as well. But they have their own set of evergreens they can grow in the southeastern United States. And I kind of had that plus all the northeastern you know, evergreens and conifers that we can grow. The whole reason why I, I wrote a book on evergreens was because a lot of people kept using the same old stuff, the same blue spruce, the same Leyland cypress, the same American arborvitae, and having problems with those plants in poor situations. And no one was really paying attention to that. So many of these wonderful evergreens that are out there that can give you deer resistance, can give you drought tolerance, can take heat and humidity. So I was able to learn a lot from the southern gardens and the southern gardeners and take some of that information up north where we are moderated by the water and can grow those things. So no one would have thought to grow cephalotaxis on the island, you know, prior to 30 years ago. And and taxes is, a, is can be a problem in the Northeast. There's many things that bother it, including deer. So, you know, that, that's just one example. I love cephalotaxis. It's, it's a very diverse plant. It's a very tough plant and not enough people use it in their garden designs.
0: Hmm. Maybe we should start off with what is an evergreen versus say a conifer or deciduous plant?
1: Okay. Well, I'm certainly a um, Not all conifers are evergreen, by the way, right? So we know that there's a lot of conifers that are deciduous. So a lot of people think that a conifer automatically means it's an evergreen. Not necessarily. There's a lot of lovely conifers that are deciduous. Mm -hmm. Evergreen really, in my eyes, is something that always has foliage. We get that confused with it holds its leaves forever. It it doesn't. It Actually, every evergreen has a fall. And so if you look at pine trees and fall and you look at other, even rhododendrons, they will drop their inner older leaves. They do have a fall. It's just... Less noticeable because they keep their newer leaves. So an evergreen is just really a plant that, quite frankly, that that holds onto its foliage uh, and always has some form of foliage. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't lose that foliage eventually. It Eventually, will. So typically, with most evergreens, they'll hold on to their first and second year uh, leaves and drop their third and fourth year leaves, depending on the species, of course. That that depends. But uh, an evergreen is always green, true, but it's not holding on to the same leaves all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's such a great point because I do get uh, emails and desperate pleas on social media from some of my readers who think that their pine is dying because of the inner shed of some of those leaves in the fall. But that's just part of the natural process.
1: It it is. And, And I can't tell you also how many people have called me in panic that their conifer is dying in the fall. And it turns out it's a deciduous conifer. And it's simply just going through the fall cycle. I've heard that as well.
0: And so they also have notorious pollen. Yep. Uh, so I have some neighbors who literally their entire upstairs becomes yellow uh, when they leave their windows open in the springtime. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that reproduction process.
1: Right. And, and certainly, uh, well, if we're talking about conifers, they are gymnosperms, so they're more primitive. They have a more primitive form of uh, floral parts. And a lot of conifers actually also set their pollen in the fall. So a lot of people who have hay fever or allergies uh, don't realize it but there's these clouds of pollen that will come off the cedars and pines and other things uh even late in the season and that can really be you know a, a detriment or a problem for people who have bad allergies but there's no question that you know that we don't think of conifers as flowering plants they do have some sort of reproductive organs it's just very different than the angiosperms which are flat true flowering plants
0: and aside from that pollen, I think most homeowners might be familiar with the pine sap that might drip off some of the evergreens.
1: Yep, it is a bane of my existence. Anytime you park under a conifer, uh, you're going to get some form of sap. So sap flow is really most prevalent when it's warm. So May through probably October, uh, anytime you park your vehicle under a pine tree or a spruce tree, you uh, all bets are off. You can certainly get sap all over your your car, your you know barbecue, or anything that's that that's under it. So but it's most it's probably the most sap flow is most prevalent in the hottest months july august you really have to be careful
0: and what causes that sap flow
1: it's it, well part of it is obviously the the plant uh has to conduct water it has to it, you know it, it, we have xylem we have phloem so there's a conductive process there where the plants have to cool themselves through transpiration there's going to be sap flow and the sap flow is definitely most active when the plant's most actively growing which is the growing season so spring through summer really and then that slows down in the fall i mean once you get into the mid to late fall the sap flow really slows down and stops and is
0: that the same source of getting and tapping for maple syrup?
1: Um, it's similar in deciduous plants. It's similar with a maple, but um, not the same, really. I think a lot of times they'll do the uh, the tapping of, of maples um, in, the, in a, at a time when the plants are coming out of dormancy, you know, uh, late winter, early spring. Um, it's similar, but it's not the same.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you hear about the sap rising, and then that's kind of what is the indication of spring is, is just around the corner. Mm-hmm. So I think one of my favorite aspects of evergreens, aside from the fact that they are evergreen and lend year-round color and texture and interest in the garden, is when they start putting on that spring into summer growth and sometimes those ends of the tips are like a really bright yellow or chartreuse color. Yeah,
1: yeah. the first thing that comes to mind would be um, things like Pieris, Pier- uh, Japanese Pieris or Japanese Andromeda. They can have very interesting either chartreuse or even bright pink new growth that eventually turns to green and a lot of plants do that rhododendrons do that uh, azaleas sometimes do that there's a lot of things that do that and that's kind of a, a neat that's one of the attributes of those evergreens is having that that sort of two-tone you know look to them and then that that new foliage eventually matures into green so that's that's kind of camellias do that by the way camellias are very popular in doing that especially the full blooming camellias will have a, sort of a bronzy new growth that eventually turns uh green
0: Hmm. Yeah, I noticed also some of the evergreens will change color, kind of shift in the cold season as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And a lot of it has to do with maturity. A lot of of times those leaves are going to be lighter green or bronze color than lighter green as they're younger. But then when they mature and they get to the fall, winter when the weather gets colder they're going to be as a very dark green so plants tend to be look darker in the winter
0: hmm. yeah and i think uh, some people observing them and not noticing that shift from season to season might think that their evergreen has some type of health issue say when it starts to be more yellow or bronzy than the deep green that they had been used to right
1: and that's the that's the beauty of evergreens as well is that in a way we kind of don't pay as much attention to them in the summer when there's foliage on all the deciduous plants there's flowering plants there's cherries and there's magnolias and there's dogwoods and there's all these things that are sort of keeping our attention and then in the fall when all the leaves fall off those deciduous plants and the the landscape is more bare now all of a sudden these evergreens sort of pop They, they sort of come to the forefront and um the light uh, is obviously the light is lower, the sun is lower in the sky in the fall, in the winter. The landscape is different, it's illuminated differently in the winter. And now all of a sudden these evergreens sort of pop. Hmm.
0: And for landscape use of evergreens, so I would say the most common use is probably as a hedge. Um, how, what do you think about using all of one variety as a hedge versus layering different evergreens?
1: Um, I'm I think it depends on the on the situation and what you're trying to accomplish. There are cases where I think that one contiguous hedge of something it, it has a certain, look to it. It has a certain continuity to it. And, you know, you're going to have the same texture and color throughout and, and that could work. Um, but it really depends on how much we're talking. I think if, if it's a small planting, that works. When we get into the larger plantings, I remember uh, seeing a what uh, lo- was really a large uh, screen sort of windbreak at uh, the Niagara School of Horticulture in Canada. And they did a great job of taking three or four different types of conifers that were not even really related to each other and using them in groupings so that there was some diversity in that planting and more sustainability it wasn't just a monoculture and it also was functional and it was also ornamental so they kind of accomplished all the goals that they wanted to do and uh, i'm sure that planting this was 20 years ago i'm sure that planting is still there and thriving because whenever you can diversify the landscape that's sort of the holy grail with horticulture is you don't want to have these monocultures because it's not very sustainable in the long run I think if you have a hedge that's, you know, 10 feet long and three feet wide, and it's a hedge of cephalotaxis or taxis or something like that, that's that's fine. But if you're talking about a, a large area, a large border, um, you may want to diversify a little bit with a couple of different types of, or a couple of different species of plants. Hmm.
0: And it's just so much more visually interesting.
1: It's more visually interesting as well, right? I, I think if we're talking about a boxwood hedge that's, you know, bordering a, a perennial garden, maybe you want some continuity. But if it's something that's more of a mixed border, mixed planting maybe you want to do several different things maybe you do uh you know camellias with lakothoe with rhododendron and you sort of they're compatible but you're you're and you're still accomplishing the same goal but it's more diverse
0: Hmm, that sounds
1: lovely like a
0: really nice combination there yep any other favorite combinations that you have
1: oh there's so many i mean i think um we sometimes uh also neglect the the, the diversity and the durability of hollies. There's so many great hollies out there that uh, you could use several different species and cultivars of hollies in the same garden and, and not be bored at all because there's so many different ones. Uh, and they have different textures and different colors and different colored berries. And they offer different things at different times. And then you can mix some of those evergreen hollies in with some of the deciduous hollies too. And they, they offset each other very well. So, um, and it's really, really hard. It's hard to, hollies are so adaptable. They, they adapt to your just about everything you give them and it's hard it's hard to not be successful with holly they they, they do work they may Take some time to establish, but they do work in many different landscape situations.
0: Hmm. And there's of course native and Asian and Eurasian. What do you think about some of the native cultivars that are being introduced these days?
1: Uh, I think they're wonderful. I mean, I think we need you know instead of just the same again the same old stuff that we're used to, we want to sort of shake it up a little bit and try to try to diversify the palette and offer a wider palette. So um, I think I think there is a movement, certainly a movement in the United States and throughout the World of going more native. And the reason we do that, you know, Doug Talame talks about it all the time about how native plants. Feed our native pollinators and our native birds, and there is a connection there. And it's not that I'm against non-native plants, but I think there's a right plant for right place for everything. And there is no question that natives provide a certain uh, benefit that non-natives can't. And and having more native hollies that are lesser known, I think, is is a great idea.
0: And speaking of right plant, right place, the mature size of some evergreens sometimes is a surprise for the home gardener. And I I'm going to lay blame on sometimes the plant labels that will give the height or width of a plant in 10 to 15 years, but not the full mature height.
1: Right. Well, I think it's a combination of things. I think gardeners and horticulturists, I think, are the most optimistic people on earth. And we don't, we live in the moment and we don't always think about 10, 20, 30 years down the road, right? Mm -hmm. And we find a plant, we're excited about it. We want to put it in, we find a place to put it. And we don't you know, necessarily always pay attention to um, how it's going to look in 10 or 15 or 20, years. And that's one of the subjects that I talk about in my sustainability book is we need to start thinking longer term than we currently do. And it's certainly notorious of homeowners who don't maybe know as much and don't realize that the cryptomeria is going to get 60 feet tall eventually. Um, And there's certainly people who say, I don't care if the cryptomeria gets 60 feet tall, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. So, you know, I'll just prune it. Um, And that that kind of culture, I think, needs to change a little bit because eventually those plants are going to get big or are not going to thrive in the situation you give them. So um, you're right, though, I think that those plant labels can sometimes be a little misleading or not, you know, don't give you all the all the, the whole story. But that's where uh, an avid gardener or someone who's really interested in might do a little more research. And, you know, there's so many good, so much good information out there, both online and in books where you can verify, you know, just how big is this cultivar going to get? Is it truly dwarf? And do a little more research. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think also a great place to research that would be at your local arboretum and to look at some of those specimens that you're thinking about adding to your garden, right, where they have been given the space to
1: Right. And that's one of the biggest functions that a public garden can provide is education. And we are living museums, right? So we display plants for the purpose of education and to to promote, uh, obviously, a better environment. But one of those things and takeaways is people come here to look at garden ideas, garden trends, and how things perform in the garden and how they're used in the garden so they can do the same thing at home. So relying on your local public garden, your local garden center, your local nursery, not a bad idea.
0: And let's talk about best practices for a little bit. So when I go to a garden center and I pick out that beautiful evergreen and I bring that home to my garden, what's my first step?
1: Well, I'm going to back up a little bit because what I try to encourage people to do is when they go to a garden center or a nursery or wherever they go to purchase plants, it's it's hard to do this because, you know, we all shop. For plants as well. But um, when they go to the to the, the nursery or the garden center, they should kind of think about, you know, a, a spot where this plant might go. I've, I've read the label. The label just says that it's going to get six feet wide by six feet tall. And I have a spot for that, you know, and, and I think it would fit there. But then beyond that, do I have the growing conditions necessary in that spot to sustain the plant? A lot of times we don't pay attention to that. We pay more attention to how big it's going to get. But then, well, it needs shade, but I, I really have it. sun. But that's Okay, uh, you know, it'll be fine. Um, I think we need to pay more attention to how what growing conditions the plant needs, and we need to, you know, scrutinize that that label or that uh, that description on the plant to make sure we have the right growing conditions for it. Cause there's nothing worse than bringing a plant home, putting it in the in the wrong spot and then it fails and then we're disappointed. So mm-hmm. just kind of thinking about not only where it will fit but where and where it will look the best, but also where it will actually thrive and grow is something that you would wanna do first. Then once you have decided that and you get it home, depends on whether it's you know obviously in the container or if it's in a bold and burlap sack. But I always like to, as far as the planting method Goes. Obviously, the best times to plant would be the spring and the fall, the fringes of the the summer. I very, very rarely, unless you're talking about herbaceous plants or annuals, you never really want to plant in the summer months, in the heat of the summer. Even when you get, you know, you go to these discount bargain sales and, and it's a Fourth of July sale, you got to be really careful about planting that time of year, especially for evergreens. I am more of a fan of planting evergreens in the spring for the most part because it gives them an opportunity to establish a root system and then go through the summer before they go into their first fall and winter, which could be, a, you know, har- harsh and cold and those kinds of things. There is an opportunity to plant in the fall as well, but it really has to be early fall when, you know, for instance, uh, you know, around Labor Day and September, maybe early October. But I sometimes see people planting evergreens well into November and December because the weather's warm or the weather's mild. And that's just a mistake on many levels. And the reason for that is the plant has no chance to really establish any kind of root system. And, you know, it's, it's something you have to, can be concerned with. But once you get the plant home, you obviously want to prep the soil if you need to. You'd want to you know, make sure the soil is right for the plant you have. If not, you want to amend that soil. If if need be, maybe add some compost or some kind of amendment to the soil. And I always encourage people to do whatever size the root bowl is, whether it's coming out of a container or a bowl and burlap sack. I encourage people, one, to make sure that the planting hole, if at all possible, is two to three times wider than the width. Of the root system uh, and also that the plant is slightly above the grade of the soil you you know not six inches but an inch maybe or two mm-hmm. so that's slightly above the grade of the soil you never want to have plants planted too deep that's the worst thing you can do and then go from there but the planting process it's you know you might have a a hundred dollar plant and you really want a three hundred dollar hole you want to make sure that ho- that planting hole is is perfect and it's it's prepared well and it's it's uh because that that planting job is going to sustain that plant hopefully for the rest of its life. And we don't spend enough time with the planting process. Sometimes we just tend to put plants in and just forget about it. And we really need to spend more time, I think, overall on the quality of that planting hole. So
0: true. And when you were saying planting super late in the season is a mistake, I started to think about the holiday season that we just went through and so many people who bought living Christmas trees and holiday decorations and then wanted to plant them right away. So would you say it's better to hold them and then plant them them in the spring or prepare the hole and get them in the ground as soon as possible
1: yeah I, well I think there's two things I think what I'm was referring to uh, what I see a lot of is for example a homeowner might hire a contractor or might do it themselves and they put in a hedge of cherry laurel or rhododendrons that's maybe a hundred feet long and they use maybe 20 plants and they put them in let's say in November or early December um, and we're talking about a huge investment of time and money and they're just too late in the season and those plants can't get established and a lot of them will get winter burn and or die, and they'll lose more than half of them. So from that aspect, it's you have a big investment, and you're losing that investment because of the wrong time of year. If we're talking about a single plant, we're talking about a, a tree that you use around the holidays, and, and it's got a burlap, you know, sack, and and you're you've got d- done for the holidays. Yeah, the thing is, you're putting it into hopefully a, a warm environment, and you're using it as a decorated tree, or you, let's let's say you even use it in a, a porch, and it's a cool environment, but it's still not you know outside then you're done with it and you want to put it right out into the into the cold into the ground uh and it's just too much of an there's no way the plant can acclimate to that and it's almost surely going to fail uh there's very few cases you might get lucky and have a mild winter and it might survive but you're just taking too much of a chance so what i recommend to people is if they have the option Put the plant in a cool garage or you know someplace that's cool but not freezing until the spring when when it thaws enough and you can actually plant it. Not always an option. You know the second option would be at least someplace against the house where it's protected, where you could wrap it with burlap and put some mulch around the root ball until it it can go out and actually be planted into the ground into the spring. But it's not a good idea to just put it out there and let it let it go uh, right from a warm house or even a cooler part of the house to the outdoors. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that can get a bad case of transplant shock for sure. And so we've got our plant in the ground, and now we're going to water it in right away. And how often would we water?
1: Well, I the general rule for plants would be that for the first two growing seasons, the plant, you're obligated, really, to make sure that plant gets watered properly at times that it needs it. So times of drought, times of heat. First two growing seasons, you have to give it a little extra care, make sure it's watered in times of drought and heat. And then after those two years the idea is it would hopefully have its own root system then it could be kind of left on its own. But, you know, you would, it's really dependent dependent on the species of plant and the size of the plant and the soil and a lot of things. But I would say that starting in spring, if if there's no real rainfall and, and you don't have any, any attributable rainfall, you would probably want to water that plant at least once or twice a week. And, you know, in times that it's cooled, maybe less. And if it's time that it's real hot, maybe even more. But the, the key is to water deeply and for longer periods of time, less less often. So if I have a, a spruce tree that went out in the spring, I would want to give it a good soaking a couple of times a week. I wouldn't just give it a, you know, a gallon or two of water. I'd give it a good soaking once or twice a week. I wouldn't wouldn't just give it a spring a spritzing. And it wouldn't necessarily just rely on the irrigation system, which are mostly geared towards turf uh, and not necessarily trees and shrubs. So you want to give your trees, your shrubs, your woody plants really a lot more water uh, at once than you would a lawn.
0: And so it's been watered, it's got a great start on life, and they're pretty easy care plants, right, Vinny? There's not too much pruning we need to do after that.
1: Again, depending on the on the species, no. Normally, you might have to do some a little corrective pruning, or maybe some broken branches or some cross branches. But generally speaking, you wouldn't really want to over prune or prune significantly your evergreen that just got planted, because pruning can also lead to shock. The plant goes into shock because it's it's a you're removing growth. So you really would want to give the plant a break and just let it get settled in this, its planting location, and then work about pruning later on
0: and if you wanted to say take a little bit off for some holiday decorations that's okay right
1: that's that's fine yeah
0: as long as you're not taking say more than a third right Yeah. And that would be really shocking to the plant. And one really fun thing I was thinking in the pruning side of things is something called a witch's broom. So let's talk about that.
1: Right. So a a witch's broom is uh, some type of growth mutation. It's usually some kind of a dwarf or distorted growth that's on a plant. Typically, a lot of times you'll see that in conifers again, spruces, firs, hemlock, things like that. And it's just a mutation of cells, basically. It's like, it's a a lot of times it's just a, a growth that looks different. And sometimes they're valuable. Sometimes plant people will propagate from that because it's a dwarf version of that spruce or it's a dwarf version of that hemlock and uh won't grow as fast and won't grow as as high and all those things and i have seen them naturally growing out of large specimen plants
0: so if you see a different growth, like one branch that all of a sudden is a different shape or a different color, should you let that stay on or should you cut that off right away? It
1: depends again on, it depends on the situation. So everyone knows Alberta spruce. Alberta spruce is a variety of white spruce. And a lot of times you'll have an Alberta spruce and sometimes you'll see reversions. In other words, you'll see what looks like a, a larger needled version of that spruce. And what that is, is the white spruce, it plants reverting back to that white Spruce. That you would want to cut out because you want that smaller, thinner needle, that dwarfer plant than that more aggressive um, white spruce. And so that would be cut out and, and hopefully it would not grow back. That happens all the time with something like an Alberta spruce. On the flip side of that, if you have a plant that's a normal size plant and you have this witch's broom that's more dwarf uh, and it's got some value to it, then you may not want to cut that out. You may want to propagate it, maybe graft it, maybe try it and see if it actually turns into something. Uh, if you don't like it, if you, if you feel that it's not, you know uh, uh, ornamental or not something worth keeping then you, you would simply prune it out and it probably would go away
0: and speaking of some of those interesting dwarf selections here in Washington D.C., we have the Gotelli Conifer Collection at the U.S. National Arboretum, and that has some incredible specimens in them. And so, dwarf is a relative term, right? Yeah. So, a dwarf of a sixty-foot tree could still be a six to ten feet plant,
1: or more. Yeah, certainly. So, dwarf really just means slower growing. Um, you know, a Camaciparis, which is false cypress. If you look at Camaciparis obtusa, which can get sixty feet tall, then you look at Camisipras optusa nana, which is the dwarf version of that. You're still looking, as you said, of 8 to 10 feet. So it's not really something that's going to be uh, suitable for a 3 by 3 foot area in your garden. So you, dwarf is really a very relative term. And there are some things that are dwarfer than others.
0: I'm a big fan of some of those really cute kind of like mushroom type dwarfs that you could use, say, in a fairy garden or a railroad uh, garden railway, Um, but those don't always stay that small.
1: No, and we actually uh, have cultivated a dwarf conifer garden, and every three or four years we go in there and we selectively remove... Uh, and relocate um, specimens that just got too big or too close to other specimens. So gardening is a process. It's not like you plant your dwarf conifer garden and you leave it alone and in 50 years it's going to look the same. It's going you know, to constantly evolve and change and you will have to make adjustments to your landscaping tweaks and edits as I call them.
0: And some of those are, you know, are really fun to collect. And as you say, you have to move them around and they might grow at a different rate than some of the neighbors. So you might have to do a little bit of adjusting in that. And that's kind of the fun of gardening. Yeah, it
1: is. It definitely is.
0: So I have to bring up the subject of deer, and uh-huh. you touched on it a little bit earlier. But are there some evergreens that are deer proof?
1: Well, that's a that's a baited question, as they say. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, I don't know that there are very, there are very few plants in this world. I think that are truly deer proof. And uh, horticulturists, my colleagues and I will argue about this all the time because the problem is it's very regional. It really depends on so many factors. So it depends on what other vegetation they have around them. It depends on how cold it is, how much snow cover there is, what mama is teaching the babies to eat. Uh, ultimately, if a, plant, if, a, if a deer is really hungry and they're starving, they're going to eat just about anything. The only thing I've seen very, very little deer browsing or deer you're feeding on uh, literally um, is things like andromeda, which is pieris, uh, and hellebores. Those are two things I've never really seen uh, browsed, even in the worst, most pressured deer areas. Mm-hmm. But. Regardless of that, I've certainly seen them eat holly. I've certainly seen seen them eat boxwood. Uh, I've, I've seen them eat, you know, a lot of things. So what I say is deer resistant in my area, you may say to me, that's totally false. I They've eaten this, this, and this. So, so colleagues will go back and forth and argue this point all the time. And there's very little consensus because it is so regional and it depends on so many factors. It depends on the size of the deer herd. If you have three deer in a square acre, it's a lot different than 30 deer in a square acre. So um, I would say that... In in general, it is a huge topic. It is the, the deer population throughout the U.S. is becoming more and more problematic every day. And you think about the devastation they do to the landscapes and, you know, it's how do you manage it and how do you manage them? And, and there's so many factors that go into this. Um, but they've been displaced. Their habitat's been displaced. And so it's, it's an understandable dilemma. I would say that one of the one of the reasons behind writing my book on evergreens was there is some thought put behind here are what I would recommend as pretty solid deer resistant plants that book was written quite a few years ago. And some of those plants I may have to rethink because I've seen them, you know, deer browsed more than, than I thought they would. But for the most part, that list is pretty solid to, to this day. And there are certain things that we would recommend in, in deer country that we wouldn't recommend uh, otherwise. So um, there are a few. I mean, again, it's all relative. But, you know, certainly, as I mentioned, Andromeda is a big one. Certain spiny, the, the um, opacas, the American hollies would be more resistant than others. And cephalotaxis is pretty good as well. The uh, plum you is a pretty good one for, for deer resistance. Doesn't mean they're deer proof though. And that's And that's why I kind of gave you that start There is There's very few things that are deer proof. Deer resistant to a certain degree, yes. But deer proof, not so much.
0: So you'll have to take other precautions like fencing or spraying if you want to protect them.
1: Well, I would say that, yes, physical barriers will obviously work. And there is a lot of promise with deer sprays and deer repellents. Um, 10, 15 years ago, I would not say that. But now there is some products that I've been using that have worked remarkably well. They have to be obviously reapplied, but they have they work remarkably well for a long period of time.
0: And moving on to other things that impact your evergreens, say bagworms and moss. What are some of the pests that a home gardener should be on the lookout for?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Certainly, if you have junipers, for instance, like you said, bagworms can be a problem. And it doesn't—they don't really kill the plant, but they make it look pretty bad. And, and the bagworms have to be pruned off, and it's just high maintenance. Uh, cedar apple rust on junipers uh, can be can be pretty bad. You see so many uh, Leyland cypress, which is a very popular fast-growing evergreen succumb to um, canker and and other serious diseases. And that's one of the reasons why we don't recommend them as much in mass plantings, because canker can be a, a stem disease that really wreaks havoc on them. In the Northeast, you know, one of the greatest horticultural tragedies, I think, is the loss of our native Canadian hemlocks to woolly adelgid. And that's a problem that really hasn't gone away. You can manage it. You can apply pesticides to keep the adelgids at bay, but certainly the adelgids haven't gone away. So you still have a problem if you plant hemlock with having to treat them. And again, that's one of the impetuses of the book is to come up with alternatives. So you can't use hemlocks, you can't use spruce, you can't use other things that have problems, but you can use things like cryptomeria, which is a pretty durable, tough plant both in the southeast, mid-Atlantic, and northeastern states, which is also called Japanese red cedar. You know, that's a that's a good one that I, I like to promote. I love the plant um, Western Arborvitae. We, we kind of focus on the Eastern Arborvitae, which is a decent plant, but has all kinds of, of problems with you know snow loads and wind. With the western arborvitae, its western cousin, if you go to the Pacific Northwest, it's native to the Pacific Northwest and, and they get pretty pretty large. They're you know they can reach over 100 feet tall. On the East Coast, they're more like 40 or 50 feet tall, and they are somewhat deer resistant, they are certainly wind resistant, they are certainly snow load resistant, and they, they do thrive in our climate. So you may have heard of a variety that's a hybrid called Green Giant. Green Giant is an excellent arborvitae, and it's very very popular now for mm-hmm. good reason it's finally pop- popular now it hasn't been for years but now it finally is and you're seeing these western arborvitaes these giant arborvitaes and green giant used in place of Leyland Cypress in place of American arborvitae in place of blue spruce and hemlock and that's encouraging because that's a plant. we don't want to overdo it we don't want to make these monocultures again but you know landscape designers and, and professionals and homeowners alike are craving you know what are we going to use if we can't use these other things so cryptomeria and, and thuia are two that are high on my list
0: And that does bring up what plant breeders are working on now. So a little glimpse into the future. Do you know what they are going to be introducing in the next few years? Well, I
1: think that a lot of the research now is based on coming up with slower growing, more dwarf plants. For instance, one of my favorite plants is Oriental spruce, which is Picea orientalis. It is a very elegant, very beautiful plant. However, it gets pretty big, you know, 50, 60 feet. And the average homeowner may not be able to fit that in the yard, but they are specifically introducing dwarf varieties uh, that only maybe get six feet tall or eight feet tall or 10 feet tall that won't get to the size of the mature straight species. So I think a lot of the breeding and a lot of the selection is being based on, again, taking these large-scale conifers and coming up with dwarf versions of them or more compact versions of them. A lot of uh, selection is also, we don't want just, as you know, we don't want just green anymore. We want gold and we want variegated and we want, you know, all these other colors and, hues that we can use as accents in the landscape. So a lot of these ornamental qualities are foliage. Foliage types, whether it's a blue or a gold or a green, uh, and improving the foliage types. A lot of breeding now is looking at, you know, we we can debate this, but certainly global climate change is a hot topic, and there's a lot of evidence to, you know, support more heat, more humidity, uh, more drought, and a lot of breeding is looking at, you know, more heat and humidity tolerance of, of conifers or of evergreens in general. Um, so that there's a lot being done with that as well.
0: A lot to look forward to. Yes. So where can our listeners contact you, Vinny? And are you having any upcoming talks or events that they could see you at? Well,
1: certainly I do have a website, which is www.vincentsimeone.com. And I do have a place there where, where people can message me. Um, I have a, a an email address that, that would be linked to that. And, you know, I, I do have a lot of information on my website. You can download plant lists, uh, on various subjects, uh, shade gardening, uh, Seashore plantings, deer-resistant plants, and a, and a bunch of other topics. I got information on my books there. I have pictures of my travels. I have articles that I've written that you can download uh, for more information, and even links to websites that can be very educational and very helpful. In addition to trying to find the next great plant that all these mail-order nurseries now seem to have, so the website would be one way to to, to contact me. Uh, I'm about to hopefully update my website to to my lecture schedule. I don't have that up yet, but you know I, I'll. I'll try to do that. But if you, if anyone wants to email me, I can certainly give you my schedule of upcoming lectures, which are uh, the lecture season is upon us and lectures are now more in person than they were last year, which is great. We are doing a few Zooms as well, but my email address is V-A-S-I-M-E-O-N-E at AOL.com. And anyone can email me and I can give them my schedule of upcoming talks.
0: And you've got several books in print, and let's talk a a tiny bit at the end of this now about your latest book.
1: Right. So I've written a total of seven books, and the last one was a a second edition of my sustainable book on what was called "Grow More with Less," and the latest one is Sustainable Gardening, which really is um, has done well. It's an international market. It's being marketed internationally as well, and it's an international subject. So I'm not surprised because it's such an important. Important subject. Uh, this idea of sustainability and making your garden more uh, user-friendly, more sustainable, we, you know, it really highlights things like the importance of native plants, the importance of supporting native pollinators and birds, um, water conservation, using less of those conventional pesticides and conventional methods and trying to use more organic methods, um, if at all possible. Um, trying to use uh, a diversity of plants and the right plant for the right place instead of, again, as I said before, where the plant looks its best. Where is it going to Thrive its best, um, trying not to be so uh, obsessed with the perfect lawn and having less lawn, having more. If you, if if I can, things like low mo, uh, no mow lawns, where you put in things like sedges or ground covers that don't need mowing the way a traditional lawn would need. If you're gonna need, a, if you're gonna do a lawn, maybe more durable turf like fescues, which don't require as much care, or even warm season grasses like zoysia grass, things like that. So it covers a lot of topics. It covers composting. We I think we. Need Need to do more with that we need to grow our own organic plant food for our plants rather than going out and necessarily using chemical ways of doing that um and i am not against chemicals at all by the way i think chemicals have a place but we need to be more conscious of doing different things at different times and if there is a reason for a chemical fertilizer there's a deficiency it's one thing but we have other organic methods we can use as well and compost is a great way to feed your garden
0: Some great advice there, Vinny. And we'll have to have you back on the Garden DC podcast to talk more about sustainable gardening in the future. That would be great. And thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.
1: This episode is brought to you by Bumble.
0: Winterberry plant profile. Winterberry Ilex is a small tree or shrub that is native to the eastern United States and southeast Canada. It is a holly but is not evergreen. It can grow to eight feet wide and high. Winterberry prefers full to part sun and wet acidic soils. It is very happy planted along the edge of a pond or lake. If they experience drought or too much shade, their berry production will decrease. To produce berries, a male and female plant are both required. To ensure that happens, plant Jim Dandy, a compact male winterberry that is specifically marketed to pollinate other winterberries. Make sure it is located within 50 feet of the female berry producing plants. It blooms in June, and its small flowers are attractive to bees and other pollinators. Winterberry is most pleasing in the autumn landscape when its leaves fall off to reveal branches loaded with bright red, orange, or yellow berries. These remain on the tree for the first part of winter, and then the birds move in to consume them. The branches of berries are often used in holiday and floral arrangements. Plant them where they can attain their mature height and spread because pruning is not recommended as it will impact the number of flowers and the quantity of fruit that the plant sets. Newer cultivars on the market include Berry Heavy, Winter Gold, Red Sprite, Sparkleberry, and Little Goblin, a dwarf version. Winterberry, you can grow that!
1: In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen and Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org.
0: new in the garden this week? Well, we've just entered the season of Imbolc. That's the halfway point between winter solstice and the spring equinox. And no coincidence that we also celebrate Groundhog's Day around that same time. So the next six weeks are a season that bridges winter to spring. This is the time of year where sap is rising, the buds on trees are starting to swell, and we can start sowing the first seeds in our greenhouses for summer plants. You'll also notice a little bit of a thaw, and one big sign in my garden this week were the robins. They came in the hundreds and stripped my neighbor's hollies of all their berries and then settled into my oak trees to digest them. So they were having a huge amount of fun. Elsewhere in the gardening world, I have a couple events I want to let you know about that you can participate in live online. And the first is on February 11th, that's Friday at 7 p.m. in the evening with The Thoughtful Gardener. And we're having a live talk about our upcoming book on urban gardening. So that will be Terry Spate, my co-author, myself, and the host of The Thoughtful Gardener, Heather Andrews. You can sign up for that at Garden Thoughtfully or at her Facebook page, The Thoughtful Gardener. Another virtual event that's coming up that you definitely want to sign up for if you love books and you love gardening is the author's book party on March 24th. So that is taking place again at 7 p.m. in the evening on a Thursday that is free and open to anybody who would like to sign up for that and you can do so at the National Garden Bureau's website, ngb.org, under education and then scroll down to webinars. Uh, another way to get there is bit.ly bit.ly/marchbookparty, book party and that features myself as the host and I'm speaking to four other book authors about their books on gardening and great gardening tips that they're going to share and it's basically a way to get us excited and ready for that upcoming spring season so i highly recommend you sign up for that as soon as possible to reserve a slot for the live session it will be recorded if you miss it and don't get to participate live Um, in-person attendees have a chance to win one of three garden giveaways So I would say that would be a great reason to sign up right there. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC you can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm/gardendc/support another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication Washington Gardener Magazine to do so go to washingtongardener.com thank you You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardner, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.